Well, thank you, Bill. And let me say what an absolute uh, joy and delight. And uh, if I may be so candid, uh, bucket list it is for me to be here at uh, the Moody Church. As uh, Bill mentioned, uh, I am a, a fan of uh, one of your former pastors, the late great Dr. R.A. Torrey. He was, in fact, the subject of my doctoral dissertation many years uh, ago. And uh, of course, he was actually the pastor of this church, became pastor here in 1894, and was the pastor when this officially became the Moody Church after D.L. Moody died, originally the Chicago Avenue Church. So uh, to stand, in a sense, in the pulpit he once held is a great uh, delight to me. Thank you, Pastor Phil, for the great invitation to come and to be here and to bring you greetings from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, but also to encourage and to, in a sense, uh, talk about uh, our mission's mandate and that which Christ has uh, left to us. And we find ourselves here in this uh, first Sunday in May, ironically, in the same kind of setting in terms of timing of where we're going to be at this morning in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is our text. As you're turning there or scrolling there, whichever one may be the case, uh, let me get, kind of set up the context of where we're going to be at this morning in God's Word. Of course, that first Easter morning had happened where Jesus had been marvelously resurrected physically, literally, bodily from the grave, having died on that first Good Friday of making atonement for the sins of the world. He has not yet been ascended. That will come later, of course, uh, in, uh, in time, Pentecost uh, Sunday, 10 days after that, celebrating what happens. And of course, we know Acts chapter 2, there as uh, we sang about this morning when the Spirit of God came and the church was supernaturally empowered. But in Acts chapter 1, we're in, in a sense, the already and the not yet. And in fact, we find here the last recorded words of Jesus before His ascension. And I would submit to you that these words of Jesus ought to be the heartbeat for you and I as a people committed to fulfilling the task God has given to the church. The missional mandate uh, is still our marching order. And I might submit to you, in some ways, we need a rethinking of mission and missions if we're going to be found faithful as God's people in the year of our Lord 2021. Let me just encourage you. Follow along in your hearts. I share this word from God's Word, beginning there in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go through verse um, 11. The Bible says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up, after He had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. After He had suffered, He also presented Himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father is set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After He had said this, He was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. While He was going, they were gazing into heaven. 
And suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is the word of our Lord. And thanks be to God this morning. Acts, you know, of course, is volume two in a two-volume set along with the Gospel of Luke, both written by Dr. Luke. They both begin the same way with this kind of salutation to Theophilus, the God-lover. And Dr. Luke makes note of the fact that uh, in that first narrative, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He couldn't write about everything Jesus did or taught because, as John reminds us, not all the books of the world could have contained everything that Jesus did or taught. He made a point here, Dr. Luke, in verse 3, to emphasize the fact that after the suffering of Christ, after His passion, He was resurrected. He presented Himself alive to them, that is, the apostles He had chosen, by many convincing proofs. And of course, you would expect me to camp out here for just a little bit because the word used here, proof, is courtroom language, is language of evidence, if you will. It is the uh, truthfulness of our faith demonstrated in real time and real space with verifiable evidence uh, that makes the point that Jesus is who He said that He was, that He did what He said He would do in such a way to where He is able to commission His apostles and His disciples to live on mission for Him. If you read the Gospels, it's very clear Jesus knew exactly who He was. He knew what He had come to do. And he makes it very clear from the beginning, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And He said, if you want to know what I'm saying is true, here's the proof, I'm going to die. Now, if He would have just stopped there, of course, we could have added Him to a great pantheon of religious leaders and sages and philosophers and teachers who died for what they believed. But Jesus did not stop there, did He? He said, if you want to know what I'm saying is true, here's the proof, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm coming back in such a way to where I will never die again. And oh, by the way, if you put your faith and trust in me, you too can conquer the greatest enemy, the greatest obstacle, the greatest fear that each of us will face because one out of every one dies. It's the great leveling fact. No matter what your social status may be, no matter what your background may be, all of us ultimately are going to die. And as the writer of Hebrews adds, after that, the judgment. But Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave on that first Easter Sunday morning in such a way uh, where Paul makes note of this fact, 1 Corinthians 15, of the laundry list of evidences in terms of the resurrection of Christ. And by the way, isn't it interesting? That, of course, the uh, first apostolic preaching of the resurrection of Christ happened in the very city He was executed in, in Jerusalem. Those disciples didn't go 500 miles away to preach about a resurrected Christ where people could not have known the difference for centuries. They had the courage of their convictions to proclaim Christ right there where He was executed. Why? Because they knew nobody would find a body because the body was not there. He was alive. And so, he's there within 40 days. By the way, this is 40 days after three years of ministry. I, I love the fact that I'm president of a theological seminary, but I have to admit, uh, these disciples had something better than what I can offer them. They had three years at the Jesus Theological Seminary. 
They had the opportunity to study with the master himself, and even a 40-day, in a sense, a final exam cram period for what was going to matter before he was resurrected from them. But bless your hearts, they still didn't fully get it. And we see that here in verse 4, while he was with them, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard me speak about, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, let's just stop there for a moment. And I want you to just kind of scroll back up in those earlier verses. And I want to ask you a simple question. Has Jesus said anything about Israel anywhere in Acts chapter 1 thus far? This means yes. This means no. This means help, right? No is the answer you're looking for. Not a thing. Isn't it interesting how even the disciples in that 40-day final exam crash course at the Jesus Theological Seminary still don't fully grasp what matters most. In fact, isn't it interesting that even as they're there in the presence of the resurrected Christ, they are easily distracted and diverted from that which Jesus said should be central and paramount in their ministry. And it is in that context where Jesus says in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. Now, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I know you have the English Standard Version in your chair racks, but let me give you a little Greenway Standard Version here of what Jesus is saying. Hey, guys, don't worry about that. Having been a pastor, having been a seminary professor, seminary administrator, and now as a seminary president, I know that church people love to ask all kind of questions about non-essential matters. We love to have all kinds of questions about, well, God, what about this? And when are you going to do this? And if you really want to get people's attention, let's start talking about the end times and the last days. Let's pop a chart behind us, and man, we can get people all kinds of interested and motivated and all those kind of things. By the way, read Acts 2, we've been in the last days since Pentecost. So now we're really in the last of 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 the days. But Jesus says, guys, don't worry about Israel, don't worry about all these other things. The, the, the times and the periods of all that, that's not for you. And by the way, of course, you remember in the Gospels, Jesus himself said that only the Father knows when Jesus is going to come back, not even the Son. The Son didn't know that. And you've got all these people out there, particularly with the internet, every kind of uh, kook and nut out there tries to predict the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Nobody can do that. And by the way, even if some nut job out there actually could guess the end date, if I were God, I'd change it just to make him wrong. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But it's what 
Jesus does next that really ought to be seared into our hearts and minds, our souls and our spirits. When there in verse 8 he says, but, the adversative conjunction, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Now, he's already talked about the Holy Spirit earlier in the passage, but he goes a little bit further here, and you will be my witnesses, my evangelists, my missionaries in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the Great Commission. And by the way, we find the Great Commission five times, uh, once in each of the four Gospels, and here for the last time in Acts 1-8. Five times. Well, why did Jesus need to tell these guys over and over again what the missional mandate was? It's because He knew, and we see how easy it is for us to become distracted and diverted from what is of first importance and priority. In fact, dare I say, uh, part of the misunderstanding that we have brought into the church of today has been a mindset that missions is for somebody else. Missionaries are super Christians who are living and serving somewhere else. And we have failed to recognize that if you are a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled child of God, you too, my friend, are called to live on mission and to be a missionary right where God has placed you. Every one of us. Give the Lord a hand. Amen. Every one of us has been given the Great Commission. It's not just given to the apostles, not just given to super-Christians down through the tunnel of time. It's given to every believer. And if I may paraphrase Churchill in a different context, never has so much been left by so many to so few to actually do. We live in a, an American cultural context today where the fastest growing religious group in ascendancy is the nuns. That's of course the N-O-N-E-S, the religiously unaffiliated, not the N-U-N-S, not the habit-wearing females. And how can that be the case when in many ways we have had more privilege, more resources, more churches, more seminaries, more Bible translations, more opportunities perhaps than any other nation in the history of humanity. I'm convinced it is because we have allowed ourselves to be deceived into thinking that the end game is that we just need to get people saved and get them on the church roll, and we've checked the box, and that's it. Instead of challenging and commissioning believers, every believer, red, yellow, black, and white, we are all missionaries in God's sight. And do we live with a mindset and a mentality that God has called us right where we are? If you're here in Chicagoland, across Illinois, wherever you may be watching online, wherever God has placed you, He has called you and commissioned you to be someone that is making disciples, a disciple who is making disciples. Now, yes, in the context of that ordinary obedience, God may call you to go to the nations. We could skip ahead to Acts chapter 13 where we see there the church in Antioch 
There were those who were serving the Lord there, Barnabas and Saul and some other guys. And in the midst of their ordinary worship, their ordinary discipleship, their ordinary obedience, their ordinary mission, God calls Barnabas and Saul out for an extraordinary mission where they would go on missionary journeys to take the gospel where it had not been yet. But that call to do the extraordinary comes out of a disciplined life committed to the ordinary obedience to the Great Commission. It's not just that we've got to go to the end of the earth, we've got to reach our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria. And until you and I internalize and personalize the words of Jesus in the Great Commission, we will fail to be the people of God living on mission, fulfilling His mandate to you and I as a New Testament church. He didn't save us just so we could gather together, even virtually or in person on Sunday mornings and check the religious attendance box. He never called our churches to be country clubs and crosses on top. He called us to be a people of, who were living on mission, doing everything we can to make it as humanly impossible for anybody to die and to go into a Christless eternity because they never had a chance to hear about Jesus. And here in God's marvelous providence, He has situated the Moody Church, a church with a marvelous heritage, tremendous legacy of faithfulness and fidelity to the gospel, tremendous pastoral lineage, and tremendous opportunity for influence. Because Chicago is one of the great cities of our nation. As Chicago goes, so goes so much of our country. And Chicago has never needed the Moody Church to be the people of God living on mission any more than it needs it today, right now, right here. Give the Lord a hand. Yes. It is a tremendous opportunity to be able to be used by God, especially as we come out of COVID-19, as we come out of this global pandemic that has disrupted and disturbed everything about us. People are thinking more about life's ultimate questions. Who am I? Where am I from? What's wrong? Where am I going? Perhaps now than any time in recent vintage. Even while religious affiliation may be going down, spiritual interest continues to be on the ascendancy. And we have an opportunity that has been set before us. If we will get back to making the main thing the main thing, the gospel, and the mission. That's what matters most. That's what we're called to do. There's been a lot of talk in church and theological circles in recent years about what it means to be gospel-centered. Uh, and gospel-centered has become kind of an adjective du jour. We've got gospel-centered ministry and gospel-centered worship and gospel-centered community and gospel-centered this and that. But please hear me lovingly. If the only people who ever hear you talk about the gospel are already believers, you are not gospel-centered. If lost people, people unchurched, dechurched, not connected to Christ in a saving and life-changing way, if they don't hear us, how will they believe? How will they respond? I've discovered 100% of those that we do not share Christ with will not respond in repentance and faith. Those who never have a chance to hear will not respond. And while we are not responsible for the results, we are responsible for the mission. 
Christ reminds us of that with crystal clear clarity. In fact, if we take seriously that the Great Commission is a command of Christ, and if we take seriously that disobedience to the commands of Christ is sin, then may I submit to you that we need to reorient our thinking to where we recognize that failure to fulfill the Great Commission is not just an unfortunate reality. It's not just something we bemoan, but it is indeed a sin before God. And until we see sin as Christ sees sin, that disobedience in evangelism and disobedience in mission is sin, we will never make the impact God has called us to make in our city, in our state, in our nation, and around the world. And yet again, even here, verse 9, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. You can imagine this, can't you? They're talking to Jesus, and all of a sudden he starts going up and up and up and up and up and up and up, just moving on up. And the apostles are doing like this, and they're just staring there. And bless your heart, they'd have just kept staring there if not for these two guys who would have showed up and said, hey, what are you doing, men of Galilee? Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Hey guys, why are you gazing? Stop gazing and get ready to start going. Dear friends at the Moody Church, are we gazing or are we going? Are we more concerned about coming to church and getting a blessing for me or going forth and being a blessing in a hurting, lost, broken world that desperately needs to see something different in you and in me? so that they might believe that they might have their lives changed. In a missions week, we celebrate all that is happening and I I rejoice in knowing how the Lord is and has used the Moody Church as a lighthouse and as a sending church for those who are serving there in Brazil and all over a million dollars for missions. Praise the Lord for that. May the Lord continue to bless and multiply and increase that. But please do not hear that just because God's not called you to go to the nations, that you somehow are exempt from the missionary mandate of Acts 1-8. Wherever you may be, whatever you may do, wherever you are, the words of Christ apply to you. And so let me challenge you on this Mission Sunday, don't let missions just be another ministry of the Moody Church for somebody else to do. Don't let it just be another line item in the budget. Don't let it just be another staff position we pay somebody else to do. Embrace, own, and realize that when God saved you, He called you to mission. He called you to witness. He called you to share. He called you to make a difference that He would use to touch the world, beginning right here in Chicagoland, and that truly will impact eternity. 
So let's together fulfill the mission and be his witnesses until he comes again. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for these moments together around your word. I'm so thankful, O oh Lord, for the privilege and blessing it is to be here, to stand behind this sacred desk. In this church, it has meant so much to your cause and your work, not just here in Chicagoland, but across America and around the world. And Lord, it's so easy to give thanks to God for a, a great heritage and legacy well over a century. But God, help us never to rest on our laurels or to think that the best days are behind us when there are lost people, hurting people, broken people, dying people who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will not hear if we do not go. And so, Lord, break our hearts over the lostness that surrounds us, burden us afresh and anew. Help us to be your witnesses. Because, Lord, it'll be in the ordinary of obedience, of living a life of faithfulness and fidelity, of sharing your love in word and in deed that you might call us to go to the nations. And so, Lord, help us to be in that right disposition daily in humble submission to your word and faithful obedience to your spirit. Use us, O oh Lord. Every day, every moment, break our hearts over the lostness that surrounds us. Sting our eyes with the tears of Christ who wept over the lostness and the brokenness of his world, our world. And may we not rest as long as there's anybody here in Chicagoland who could die tonight and go into a crisis eternity and the billions around this world who desperately need to hear the love of God and salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. Bless us now as we continue in worship. For we ask and we pray all these things by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.